This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Much to discuss this evening. Let's turn, first of all, though, to the markets. European equities down today. First time that's happened uh, on a consecutive basis uh, this year. It's been an incredible run for European equities, but we were down yesterday and we were down today. Now, we are definitely down in the States and we are reacting to earnings, particularly tech earnings. But, Alex, we're bouncing. Yeah, we're definitely off the lows of the session, which I also feel like is significant, particularly when we have a Tesla, uh, IBM uh, after the bell. Also, just some geopolitical news. We'll get to this in also just a moment. Um, the U.S. is going to provide 31 Abrams tanks and 8 M88 vehicles to Ukraine. The training starts now. And this sort of piggybacks on uh, the Leopard 2 tanks that Germany is also sending. Yeah. Um, when they arrive, I think, is an open question. We'll talk about this in just a moment. Um, the Abrams tank is unbelievably complicated, uh, both to maintain and to use. Um, the the leopards obviously are probably more well known, certainly here in Europe. But nevertheless, mm -hmm. this is this is equipment that is not going to be available on the battlefield for really quite some time. We'll, we'll talk about the details of that in just a moment. But as you say, the president is is speaking right now on this matter can we listen in i'm not i'm not sure the producer's gonna love me for this but whether or not she has a feed uh we will find out but maybe maybe we'll come back to biden uh in just a moment uh and uh before we do that get some headlines here is charlie Powell. i thank you very much guy johnson here's what's going on hundreds of amazon warehouse workers in the uk walked off the job today the first such industrial action by the company's british employees while unprecedented the strike affected a relatively small fraction of employees at the amazon facility in coventry of the uh, coventry i should say of the approximately 2,000 workers there about 2,800 members of the gmb union were eligible to participate industry leaders told a parliamentary committee today that Britain needs more government support to achieve its nuclear power ambitions, which could improve the country's energy security and help achieve its climate goals. Also today, Jaguar Land Rover returned to profit under improved availability of semiconductors, and that boosted output of high-end new models. The luxury car maker reported profit before tax of £265 million in the three months ending in December, compared with a £9 million shortfall a year earlier. Jaguar Land Rover is owned by Indian parent Tata Motors. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Thank you very much indeed, Charlie. As I say, the president is speaking on Ukraine right now in Washington. Let's take a quick listen. And they need an enduring capability to deter and defend against Russian aggression over the long term. The Secretary of State and the Secretary of, of, the, uh, of uh, the military are behind me. Uh, are, uh, they, they've been deeply, deeply involved in this, this whole effort. Armored capability, as uh, General Austin will tell you, speak, uh, uh, is, has, been, has been critical. And that's why the United States has committed hundreds of armored fighting vehicles to date, including more than 500 as part of the assistance package we announced last Friday. And today, today I'm announcing 
that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Secretary Austin has recommended this step because it will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. The Abrams tanks are the most capable tanks in the world. <clears throat> They're also extremely complex to operate and maintain. So we're also giving Ukraine the parts and equipment necessary to effectively sustain these tanks on the battlefield. When we begin, we'll begin to train the Ukrainian troops on these issues of sustainment, logistics, and maintenance as soon as possible. Delivering these tanks to the field is going to take time. Time uh, that we'll see and uh, we'll use to make sure the Ukrainians are fully prepared to integrate the Abram tanks into their defenses. We're also closely coordinated this announcement with our allies. The American contribution will be joined by an additional announcement, including that will be, uh, will be readily available and more easily integrated for use in the battlefield in the coming weeks and months from other countries. I'm grateful to Chancellor Schultz for providing German Leopard 2 tanks and will lead an effort to organize a European contribution of two tank battalions for Ukraine. I want to thank the Chancellor for his leadership and his steadfast commitment to our collective efforts to support Ukraine. Germany has really stepped up. The Chancellor has been a strong, strong voice for unity, a close friend, and for the level of effort we're going to continue. Supporting Ukraine's ability to fight off Russian aggression to defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity is a worldwide commitment. Not just look, it's a worldwide commitment. Last week, Germany, in Germany, Secretary Austin convened the Ukraine Defense Contact Group for the eighth time. This group was made up of some 50 nations, 50 nations, each making significant contributions of their own to Ukraine's integrity. Each fully committed to making Ukraine remain strong and independent and able to defend itself against Russian threats and violence. I want to thank every member of that coalition for continuing to step up. The UK, the United Kingdom, recently announced that it's donating Challenger 2 tanks to Ukraine. France is contributing AMX-10s, armored fighting vehicles. In addition to the Leopard tanks, the Germany, like the United States, is also Germany is also sending a, pet, a Patriot missile battery. The Netherlands is donating a Patriot missile and launchers. France, Canada, the UK, Slovakia, Norway, and others have all donated critical air defense systems to help secure Ukrainian skies and save the lives of innocent civilians who are literally the target, the target of Russia's aggression. Poland is sending armored vehicles. Sweden is donating infantry fighting vehicles. Italy is giving artillery. Denmark and Estonia are sending howitzers. Latvia is providing more Stinger missiles. Lithuania is providing anti-aircraft guns, and Finland recently announced its largest package of security assistance to date. You may remember I was asked a while ago what I think was going to happen, and I said, I let Putin know. He thought that he's going to end up with the Finlandization of Europe, where he's got the NATOization of Finland. He's gotten something he never intended. Together with our allies and partners, we've sent more than 3,000 armored vehicles, more than 8,000 artillery systems, more than 2 million rounds of artillery and ammunition and more than 50 advanced multi-launch rocket systems. And I ship an air defense systems, all to help counter Ukraine's brutal aggression that's happening because of Russia. And look, today's announcement builds on the hard work and commitment from countries around the world 
led by the United States of America to help Ukraine defend its sovereignty and its territorial integrity. That's what this is about, helping Ukraine defend and protect Ukrainian land. It is not an offensive threat to Russia. Are, there is no offensive threat to Russia. If Russia troops return to Russia, they'll be there this, where they belong. This war would be over today. That's what we all want, an end of this war in just and lasting terms. You know, our teams do not permit one nation. We're not going to allow one nation to steal our neighbors to territory by force. Our terms that preserve Russia's sovereign, Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity and honor the UN Charter. That's our, they're the terms we're working on. And you know, these are, the, these are the terms we all signed up for and 143 nations voted for in the United Nations General Assembly last October. So, the United States, standing shoulder to shoulder with allies and partners, is going to continue to do all we can to support Ukraine. Putin expected Europe and the United States to weaken our resolve. He expected our support for Ukraine to crumble with time. He was wrong. Okay, you've been listening to President Biden speaking in Washington, D.C., announcing, confirming uh, that America is going to send 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine uh, and all the equipment and training that goes with it. Uh, This is a huge step for the Americans. It's probably an even bigger step uh, to hear the Germans uh, announcing that they are going to send Leopard 2 tanks um, from Germany and other parts of Europe uh, into the into the Ukrainian battle. Um, this is going to be a slow process, though. It feels like a big announcement, but it's going to be a slow burn uh, in terms of the impact that it's going to have mm-hmm. on the battlefield. Um, Alex, let's bring in uh, Bloomberg's Ros Matheson to get a take on all of this. Ros, can you just pick up what what we had just heard from the president? I think almost confirms what you told me a little bit earlier on. It's going to take a long time for these for these vehicles to arrive. It's going to take a long time for them for for them to be trained to use them. And these the Abrams tanks in particular are really complicated pieces of equipment. That's right, and they also guzzle a, a lot of gas. And you could hear the U.S. president making that point a short time ago and confirming uh, the plan to send these tanks at some point in the future is that they also have to send a lot of spare parts, a lot of stuff so they can be maintained on the ground. They're very finicky and complex to maintain. These are the the most advanced Western-made battle tanks, and they're very different from what the Ukrainians are used to operating. So he said they've got to send in a whole lot of kit with it. They've got to do a lot of training before they're comfortable that Ukrainian troops will be able to manoeuvre these much more complex tanks uh, to their benefit on the battlefield. And he was cautioning all of that as he was announcing these 31 tanks and the plan to send them. So it's very clear that they're warning Ukraine at the same time, like these things aren't going to come soon and, Mm -hmm. and they're also going to be potentially difficult for you to use. Well, at the same time, I felt like President Biden was very specific. This is not an offense to Russia. There's no offensive threat to Russia. No chance that Russia sees it like that. Um, How can you walk me through the difficulty there of being defense but not offense when it comes to such a ramp up of, of, of military capability? Well, we've seen this go on across the the past 11 months where uh, the Western allies of Ukraine have sent in increasingly more offensive weapons, longer-range missile systems able to better deflect what's coming from Russia, better able to strike sometimes inside Russian territory even that we've seen and certainly areas like Crimea. And it's been bit by bit each time testing the boundaries of the Russian president because he has said each of those things is a red line and he will retaliate. But each time in the end, he has not. Um, 
There does remain that concern, though. At some point, do they go over a line where, for Russia, it really does draw NATO uh, and, and Europe more broadly into this conflict directly? And that's probably where you're going to see the line still is on sending fighter jets in, um, you know, Western-made fighter jets in, and certainly the idea of an air defence zone. Those sorts of things really remaining off limits for now. In terms of how this changes the timeline that we're looking at in terms of the conflict over the next few months... At the moment, very cold. Um, the the conflict seems to have, in some ways, ground to a halt. Um, you're seeing a kind of war of attrition developing on the ground. But we are anticipating that we are going to see offensives take place as we work our way towards the spring. How does the announcement on tanks change that? Well, if anything, you, you were saying this earlier also, it might potentially speed things up because if you're the Russian president and you're looking at the window here, you're seeing that these tanks will probably start arriving in about three to four months bit by bit, um, and certainly enhancing Ukraine's um, abilities as soon as they get there. So if you're uh, looking at making a fresh offensive against Ukraine uh, to try and not only just hold the territory you've got, but try and gain some more, which they really struggle to do, then it, it, your window is probably coming pretty soon in February or March before these tanks get there. And certainly there are indications that Russia is mobilising some sort of movement um, as, soon as, as soon as next month as, mm-hmm. the, as the weather turns a bit more in its favour. So... The, to that point, though, one one uh, I don't want to say weapon, but one tool that Russia has used against the West has been um, energy. Now, we have already an oil price cap. We have a product price cap coming on in a couple weeks. Um, gas flow is still flowing, but it, it's really shut off from what it was. And the winter isn't as cold and everyone's storage tank seems to be a bit better. Has has Putin lost leverage on that front or there's still lever, levers that he can pull here? Well, it certainly seems that in temporarily he's lost leverage because, as you say, the weather's been better. Uh, Europe seems to have gotten through this winter um, all right, although Russia has had a lot of success um, specifically striking energy infrastructure inside Ukraine, very long-term damage that's been done there. But the question is more like what happens with the next winter and is Europe prepared for that if the weather is not so favourable, for example? They raced to filled stores uh, for this winter, but it's still a question for the next one. And certainly, you know, Russia is still an enormous producer of energy that is in demand around the world. Uh, Even as some countries stop buying, you still see India, you know, countries elsewhere still quite keen to do business with Russia. So certainly energy is still uh, a provider of money for Russia, which in turn helps his war in Ukraine uh, and possibly coming into the next winter or if we get a very hot summer, I would add, in Europe, um, this could surface again. Ros, very quickly, you talk to a lot of people. What is the base case now for this conflict? Well, certainly the base case is that this war is seen as going on for a long time, um, that a near-term result is unlikely. Russia is quite entrenched in some parts of Ukraine, not interested in talks uh, mm-hmm. until you get sort of some sort of movement unlikely to be anything towards a peace process. So that the idea is this conflict is probably going to go on for some time yet. Well, and then to that point, what kind of risk that then poses to Europe? And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Roz, thanks a lot, Roz Matheson, joining us. So even though you've seen a huge flow into European equities and some positive sentiments and the soft data doing really well, you still have the overhang of the Ukraine war plus an ECB that could over-tighten. We're going to talk about that next, as well as look at a BOE. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele, and New York Guy Johnson is over in London. So just for perspective here, European stocks, the Eurostox 50, is up almost 10% for the year. The CAC uh, Caron is up 8.8%. The DAX is up over 8% as well for the year. Now, we just talked about the big risk in terms of Ukraine and a war that doesn't seem to have a strong end date, if anything, much more involvement from the West. The other big risk factor for Europe is what's going on with the ECB if they wind up over-tightening. Some of the soft data coming in, not bad. Look at the EFO uh, index over in Germany. I mean, it's not great, but things are slowly improving, yet the hoggish rhetoric continues from ECB officials. So let's get Marcus Ashworth and his opinion here from Bloomberg Opinion. Um, Marcus, how big of a risk do you think that an over-tightening ECB is going to be? Um, potentially huge, and I don't think it's worth, um, even though they, be, they view it as a relatively low percentage risk, I think the uh, flip side of getting it wrong is so mesmerically huge, as in a potential collapse of, of, of certainly of EU relations, if not the EU itself, that I can't quite understand why there's such zeal. I mean, the comments today from the Zulu's Bank head, Nigel, that you know we will proceed with the two rate hikes as laid out by uh, President Lagarde when you know he missed missing the word as I told President Lagarde to say uh, because that's really what's going on here there's a, a, a zeal towards hiking rates which shows no regard to um, the need and or indeed um, the, the underlying economy uh, this is a big gamble they've gone from negative 50 basis points and, and reality well below that because banks could b- got borrow well below one percent they were paid give money at negative one percent to now being you know, two and a half or, or more, um, and, and 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 clearly want to go higher. He, he wants to continue hiking into the second quarter. Uh, the shock to the European system, at the same time as they've not just stopped QE, but they are about to reverse it, and they clapped the balance sheets of this this super low cheap bank loans, which I mentioned earlier. All three things at once. You know, really, this is a a live experiment on the European corpus, and we don't know how it will end. When do we think we will know what is going to happen here? It's interesting. We're trying to work out what the variable lags are. The The Bank of Canada today has raised by 25 basis points, but is now pausing to see what effect it's going to be having. How comparable do you think those two markets are? Canada has a lot of variable rate mortgages. In some ways, it's more European in terms of in terms of its structure than the United States. How How long are we going to when will we know what the lags look like? Well, when it's too late, and, and you know, you look at Spain, they have a lot of variable rate mortgages, and, and there are a number of countries around Europe which have their own system tied much more to Eurobor than, for instance, fixed rates that we have, say, in, like in the UK. So, um, I mean, the one thing I'm quite interested on is German bunt yields. Look at the bottom of the pile, not the top. We all used to looking at, at, say, Italy yields and the spread over Germany as that's where the risk is going to come. But in actual fact, it's Germany because. German yields aren't doing very well at the moment compared. That's why some of these spreads are optically tightening. I'm looking at France in particular. You know, it's only about 40 odd basis points over Germany. It's really not bad at all. However, you know, likewise with Italy. The point is that Germany is issuing an awful lot more debt, probably 200 billion more this year than it previously was. Its whole so-called Schwarzenegger black zero has gone straight out the window and is never coming back. They're having to borrow an awful lot more, let alone the centre, that's the EU, is borrowing a huge amount more as well. And they've all got to finance it at much higher rates. That will come back to pay. And that's, if anything tips Italy over, it will be because their absolute yield they're having to pay to finance their debt will prove too much for them. So how does the ECB then 
handle that. So do, so do you feel like all the talk we've seen is just about credibility and not the actual fundamentals then? Yeah, as, I, I, as you mentioned, I read an article that came out yesterday, basically precisely this, that the, that the ego on the, and the, the, the hurt reputation of the central bankers because they completely missed the ball on inflation means they're going to overreact and make a mistake the other way by overly tightening just to prove that they are, they've got their, their chops for, for inflation fighting. And what who will suffer will be asked, you know, the economy will be forced into an unnecessary recession. You know, bear in mind, Europe was in a recession all but name before COVID. They have spent their way out of it, chucked on a huge amount of debt. And yes, it is having some impact. The reason why the European economy and EFO is not going further down is because of the money that's being thrown at the wall. Uh, it ought to have some effect. Whether it's having a sufficient effect and will it continue to have an effect, I don't know. But the, the price is being paid by higher bond yields, and at some point that is going to hurt. The best way of stopping that or controlling it is by pausing and waiting and seeing what the effect is through and not keep on raising the deposit rate without actually understanding what the effects, the lagged effects of all the tightening so far has been. The market is now pricing cuts for the Bank of England. It's starting to think about the other side. Is it too little too late? Uh, you've been talking about this for a long time. Oh, I love it. I mean, it's just, uh, where do I start with this? Well, firstly, it's a rounding error. If you look out from uh, May forward, uh, 23 on, on sorry, uh, you, you're looking at maybe six months on from there, a 20 odd basis point difference in, in all the various futures rates. It doesn't really matter. And it will flip back the other way. It's just the way forward curves are priced. I, I, it tells me that, that people know precisely nothing. And that's what's been priced into the curves is that they, they don't really know what happens uh, beyond probably another 50 basis point rate, rate cut, uh, rate hike, pardon me, on, on February the 2nd, maybe another 25, but I don't think there will be. I think we'll stick around four. And from then, they don't know. Uh, for them to start pricing in rate cuts, which, by the way, is what's also been priced in, into much of the Federal Reserve's annoyance in mm -hmm. the States. The US curve is priced say All the UK is doing is just, if in doubt, look what's going on, look what we'll, we'll sort of price sort of where the US is pricing they have no idea. But this is where I think the Bank of Canada stuff is interesting because the Bank of Canada did 25 and then they're going to hold and pause. But they do see inflation coming down with a three handle uh, uh, this year and then a two handle next year. So that's not a terrible oh. thing. Oh, it's, it's perfect common sense. It's exactly what the bank should be doing and possibly what the Fed may have to do. Because if the Fed does only hike by 25, it's going to tell everyone, particularly the ECB, that they're, they're missing the program here. And ECB will carry on as they always do, blithely ignoring, thinking they're separate and different from the rest of the world, and find out for themselves very expensively later on. The Bank of England, I think, will clock on much quicker. That's why two of the MPC members voted for zero change at the last time when it were already 50 basis points higher than they wanted. So there'll be a real struggle to hike rates more, I think, in the UK. Marcus, always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Marcus Ashworth talking us through what is happening with the European Central Bank story. It's going to get really complicated. Um, you've got one, the first one of the major central banks, the Bank of Canada, pausing, trying to see what effect it's having. I think this is going to be a really interesting experiment to see just how long that lag is. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over uh, in London. All right, looking at S&P, that's off just 9 tenths. The Nasdaq off by 1.3%. It's still not great, but it's a lot better than where we were. I mean, at one point, you were looking at a Nasdaq down by over 2%. Um, there is a kind of reality check, though, when it comes to earnings. Uh, you had Microsoft... Uh, 
slowing growth for its Azure unit. Uh, that didn't help the investor feelings uh, when the conference call was underway yesterday. Um, you also had Texas Instruments wait on some sentiment. You get Tesla and IBM after the bell today. Uh, we will get to that in just a moment. Um, and overall, you have seen some stocks do have a nice run, like Tesla's up 17% into the numbers. Microsoft was around its 50 and 100 day moving average. If you disappoint, that could get really tricky when it comes to the price action the next day. So that's a quick snapshot of where we are within the market. And let's get over to some more stories now with Charlie Pellet. Right, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. UK factories fuel and raw material costs are rising at their slowest pace in almost a year. Further evidence that pipeline inflationary pressures are easing. Now, according to the Office for National Statistics, input prices rose 16.5% in December from a year ago. That is down from a peak of 24.6% in June. And that was the slowest pace since February of 2022. Traders are betting that the Bank of England will reverse course and cut its key interest rate later this year to shore up a flagging economy. For the first time since August, money market wagers show a quarter-point cut is fully priced in by year-end. Middle Eastern buyers of prime real estate in central London hit a four-year high in the second half of 2022 when they took advantage of the weak pound and relaxed COVID restrictions, according to property consultant Frank. EasyJet shares surged the most since March today after the carrier said strong bookings continued into the second quarter and the crucial summer months underscoring how the aviation industry is staging a comeback from the pandemic despite persistent cost of living concerns among consumers. EasyJet based in Luton, they're up today by almost 10%. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, hold that thought for EasyJet. Or unless you want to go to EasyJet now, and then we can talk United? We can talk about EasyJet now. Let's do it. So, so, so EasyJet has been a company that has been struggling for quite some time relative to its peer group. It has in the in the low-cost world, a higher business cost model, and it is more exposed to sort of package holidays. Now, that has been seen as a source of weakness. It obviously had a very challenging pandemic. Um, today's numbers, Alex, mm. I, I can't explain how strong they are, how strong the outlook is. This is an industry that everybody thought might be hit by a slowing consumer. They are saying none of that today. Mm -hmm. And we have to though wonder, can that actually continue um, when you have like 3M rolling over, when we're worried about people being able to spend? Can the airline industry truly hold up when people get laid off? Say goodbye to your hybrid work slash vacations. Um, does that actually make a difference? Also, where do you get pricing power? Is it going to wind up on EasyJet or is it going to wind up with one of the big carriers like a United? Um, that's a very good question. We caught up with the United CEO, Scott Kirby. He was down... Um, congratulating a whole load of his new pilots that are coming through their first uh, their first sort of um, big installment of the, of the school that's been set up by uh, United. Uh, but we basically asked him kind of what is happening. The, the recession is coming, but the airlines aren't signaling it. So what I think really is happening, and this has been happening for at least a year, is it's a return to normal. So businesses that over-indexed during the pandemic, whether you were selling, you know, exercise equipment or something online, you know, things just went through the roof. Uh, and now they're coming back to the normal trend line. Services business, including travel, uh, including aviation, you know, went, our revenues went down 99%. We were in the worst depression we'd ever been in. And so we're coming back up to normal. So if you're in aviation, uh, despite all the macro 
headlines, it feels like really, really uh, as good as it's ever felt uh, in terms of our demand. And you combine yeah. that with supply challenges, you know, it, things just look really good. So, so when we hear about the consumer slowing down, when we see other industries saying that the consumer is hitting a wall, you're not worried about that? Well, it's not that I'm not worried, but we're not seeing it. Um, and part of it, like, look across the Atlantic. You know, uh, United, actually, because we didn't retire airplanes, because we kept our pilots in position, is going to be 36% larger across the Atlantic. But there's going to be fewer there's gonna be fewer seats flying across the Atlantic than there were in the summer of 2019. And the economies have grown, you know, in real terms, by 24% since then. That's a backdrop that creates a really strong supply-demand environment. And, and aviation, I think, is just different. I mean, we do wind up getting... We wind up being a proxy yep. for people betting on the recession or not. Um, but the, the fundamentals, not just at United, but across the industry, look much stronger than anyone had, than most of the sell side had expected, at least. You really surprised the market with, with, your, with your outlook, um, which is much more positive than a lot of the analysts have been anticipating. Yeah. How much longer can this be sustained, I guess is the question now. We, we've been caught by the fact that demand is much higher and much stronger than we were anticipating. I guess the question now is how much kind of longevity are we going to see with that demand? Well, you know, look, people have been saying for two years this is pent-up demand and, you know, what's going to happen. Um, I, I am of the view that this is the new normal. Hybrid work makes every weekend a holiday. Uh, demand, you know, is – we went through a long deck on our – about the demand relationship, revenue relationship to GDP. Um, you know, as it's – it's not even back to normal. As it's returning to normal, yep. uh, you know, we see really strong results. And, and you combine it with the fact – I think the least appreciated thing for airline investors still – is there are supply challenges that are not created by the industry that we you know they're not enough pilots you know FAA challenges um, OEM challenges Boeing reported today you know like there are all these challenges that are just limiting supply growth um, and whether you like it or not the new normal is airlines are not going to be able to realize their growth aspirations and that just creates a supply de demand dynamic um, you know that's that's showing up in our bottom line you mentioned hybrid work there which I think is really interesting the labor market is holding up at the moment, and this will be a perfect segue to talk about training pilots in just a moment. The labor market yeah. continues to hold up and it continues to be very strong right now. That, therefore, is supporting this ongoing hybrid work experiment. But at some point, I'm assuming that the labor market does roll over. When the labor market does roll over, how does that affect that, that hybrid work narrative that you're talking about? So I, we'll see. Uh, but, you know, I am betting that broadly speaking across the economy uh, office workers are not going to be back working in offices 100 percent of the time monday 9 to 6 p.m um and and what's happened is people can now you know work one or two days remotely until they leave on wednesday or thursday they go to a vacation destination they work all day but just like they would work if they were sitting uh, at home working yeah. they're just working from a remote location and what we see is particularly higher, you know, upper income, they're just traveling more than they ever did before. And that is because they always had the financial flexibility to travel, but they didn't have the time flexibility. And now they have the time to travel because they're still going into the office, but they're not in the office five days a week, Monday to Friday, nine to six. And that gives them more flexibility. I think that's the new normal. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. we'll see uh, as, as time goes on, but it's probably the new normal.
That was Scott Kirby, the CEO of United. And as I pointed out, Guy and I would happily do the show remote from the south of France. Um, I don't know if that worked, but we try. Um, what I also found was really interesting is we talked about the pilots and having um, the first graduating class guy from the United Aviate Academy. And he said it would still be like five or six years until these guys wind up flying commercial, which just goes to show just how pervasive the pilot shortage actually is. Yeah, and they're going to get first pick. And and the point he was making is that airlines further down the food chain, the more regional carriers, that is where the real challenge is. Mm-hmm. Where he really wants to invest right now, where he's pushing for investment, is not in the airline sector, it's in the aviation sector. He wants more money to flow into the FAA. Those are the big bottlenecks right yeah. now. It, it's air traffic control. Those are the big issues within this industry. And that's where he, Scott Kirby, thinks that money should be spent. Yep. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listen to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Uh, the news over the last few minutes is that uh, the U.S. will now send Ukraine 31 of its M1 Abrams um, battle tanks. Uh, this is in addition to German commitment to supply some of its top-line armor and infusing Ukraine with a new major capability um, against Russia. Let's get more insight on the D.C. level. Uh, Josh Wingrove joins us now, Bloomberg White House reporter. Josh, how did this wind up coming about? Um, I know there was going to be pressure from Germany to move the U.S. with them, but I'm also curious as to any bipartisan support uh, that Biden must have had. Yeah, I mean, this has been sort of a slow drumbeat of, you know, ratcheting up the type of arms that the U.S. is willing to send, stuff that they, you know, nearly a year ago when the invasion first happened, ruled out sending, or at least ruled out for now sending, they're now willing to. And so, you know, it's only a little while ago that, uh, that they were ruling out tanks, and now this is a major announcement made in concert still a little unclear the details, including how long it will take for some of these to get, how many other countries that might have Leopard tanks, those German tanks, will actually take Germany up on the sort of freedom that Germany is giving them to now move those to Ukraine should they wish, and therefore it's unclear how many tanks and how soon Ukraine will have. But pretty uh, pretty big step, nonetheless, that will allow Ukraine to mount a counteroffensive at some point and be more effective in the sort of open field battles. That is why this coming to a head now. A lot of the fighting is concentrated in that Donbass region, which is, you know, brought more open, kind of like farmland, that kind of thing. And that's why Ukraine is saying, hey, we need vehicles. First, it was armored vehicles that got now the step tanks. These tanks, I, Josh, the, the Abrams tank is unbelievably complicated. It basically has a jet engine in it. It's a gas turbine tank. It's going to require huge amounts of maintenance. Is America basically just planning to have a series of engineering stations at the Polish border in which these things can be fixed? Because otherwise, there's going to be a lot of potentially Abraham's tanks not doing very much. Yeah, it's a a great question, one that we simply, or at least I simply don't have the answer to. But this is why they sort of punted on this question for quite a long time, saying, look, these things are super complex. This was an issue, too in the Patriot missile system, saying, you know, these things take a while to set up, take a while to ship, and take a lot of training to be able to help set up on those. In those ones, it's a case of trying to shoot down drones and missiles. Um, so, yeah, you're getting this sort of like this creep of like training and, and equipment that may be housed in Ukraine, may not be housed in Ukraine. Training might be done in Ukraine. In some cases, even remotely, uh, you know, we, we, we just don't know right now. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what, what is clear so far is there's no indication that American boots are going to cross into Ukraine. That's been sort of a major barrier uh, issue for the president. So, you know, we're, we're going to see. But the, the, the flip side of this, aside from the questions of logistics and the questions of delays and how do you keep these things running, when do you get them in the field, 
uh, is, is of course, the escalation risk. That is why the, they have not wanted to go sort of all in immediately uh, is the sort of slow, steady ratcheting, it seems, they think, lowers the risk that Putin will say, oh, no, the West is in the is in the ball game now, mm-hmm. and this is an escalation, and, well, and, and they're going to retaliate. Well, I mean, you can make the argument that he's already saying that, um, Putin. Um Okay, let's go to Economic Council here. So the other headline is that uh, Vice Chair uh, Lyle Brainerd of the Fed is a top contender to be the head of the White House National Economic Council. Okay, so clearly the White House is floating this to see the reaction. What's been the reaction? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm not sure they would necessarily float it. Necessarily, uh, uh, <laughs> we'll see. Fair enough. Uh, but, you know, she, she is one of the top uh, names that would have been floated around before this, you know, President Biden's face is preparing for turnover, right? Like, go back a couple of days, the chief of staff uh, is reported to be leaving, be replaced. Brian Deese, uh, we knew, was leaving the National Economic Council director. So the question is, who is Joe Biden going to replace him with? And, you know, there, there are names on that list. It seems Brainer is a front runner now. That's what the news of the day is. But we're told the process is ongoing. You know, interviews are ongoing. And so this could change, of course. Uh, Brainerd was uh, previously a strong candidate for Treasury Secretary until it turned out that uh, a certain former Fed chair by the name of Janet Yellen was Treasury Secretary. So, you know, this this could still change, but certainly she's at the very least uh, a, a, a front runner for this gig. And this is a powerful economic role, really staff role next to Joe Biden on a daily basis. So it's a big one, whoever gets it. Josh, thank you for the update. Really appreciate it. It does make you wonder who would be the new vice chair over at the Fed as well. Uh, Josh Wingrove joining us out of Washington, D.C. Thank you very much indeed. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. I think the number I'm looking for really is the cash flow because... Tesla has been building up inventory, so they under-deliver their production, but also they also structurally building a bit more inventory to be able to supply cars as they kind of, as their business model of direct distribution matures. So I think there's probably a bigger hit on cash flow than what is in consensus. Um, we'll see the ASPs and the gross margin, but those are moving targets, mm-hmm. but it's potentially rebasing on the cash flow. That was Philippe Houchois, um, Jeffrey's International Managing Director uh, of Autos uh, and Autos Research. He covers both the United States and Europe, uh, talking to Alex and I a little bit earlier on. So Tesla's about to come up with numbers. The stock um, has been crushed of late. Since the beginning of the year, it's certainly had a significant bounce. Today, it's well off its lows, which it hit kind of an hour or so into, into the market session. What are we looking for? in the numbers this evening, Alex, is going to be one of the key questions. This is a company that has just cut prices, and it cut prices in a fairly chaotic way. So I'm not sure yet we fully understand the impact of those price cuts. No, we don't. And also, the idea is that you're going to sacrifice some profit in the margins for volume and sort of what the significance is of that. Um, okay, let's get more with Ed Ludlow. Uh, he joins us now. This, he, he's, he said yesterday, he's like most excited to talk about this. Um, okay, Ed, the number you care about today. I think gross margin, like I know I can feel it through the airwaves, you guys like, oh, roll the eyes. But it's important, right? You know, that whatever happens in the world, that your investor in Tesla, you know, the demand ebbs and flows, analysts always come back to gross margin because Tesla's gross margins are so far ahead of the rest of the automotive industry. And the consensus is for us to come down to 25% on gross margin. It's kind of been creeping lower quarter by quarter because of you know increased price pressures on the component side and, and raw materials side. Um, in the context of cutting prices, 
not just here in North America, but China and Europe as well. I think that's where the street goes to, to look at what the impact of that is to Tesla's financials. We were talking to Philip Hushwar a little bit earlier on. He said that price cuts that has been recently delivered it's kind of around the world in terms of the models that they're selling felt a little chaotic. They they sort of did it and then they kind of backfilled the strategy in. What, what do you think about that price cut? What impact is it going to have? How does this change the narrative around Tesla? Yeah, I, I mean, in China, the price cuts are interesting because it's a much more competitive marketplace, right, where there are many more players offering many more models across a much broader price range simply put there's something for everyone at every price point and you know tesla cutting prices there uh it's a more direct lever for demand you know here in the united states we've been waiting for a really long time to understand the impact of the ira the inflation reduction act and who would qualify what the parameters for qualifying for tax incentives would be and it was really interesting to see tesla follow up so quickly with price cuts in the u.s um as well as you know, offering this seventy-five hundred dollar incentive, um, you know, through March, I believe. So uh, it, it still doesn't change the, the the fact that that Tesla's average selling price is still very much near the sort of normal or mean average selling price for any vehicle in North America, which is still upwards of $45,000. And, you know, this is more of a macroeconomics discussion, but there are household pains in every state in this country, right? And um, the, 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 basically, Teslas are still expensive here. So it'll be interesting to see what the, the commentary is on the earnings call about what those price cuts actually did to drive volume demand. So I guess the question then becomes the why. So is it that there's just not the demand at the high prices, or it's just he just really needs to get these cars out the door? Because I'm wondering how we understand the read-through to other car companies who don't have the kind of leverage that Musk does or that Tesla does to pull to help their margin pressure. Yeah, it's a it's a moving or a sliding scale, right? You know, Elon Musk was talking very recently on a on a Twitter Spaces about getting the balance right. You know, the question that he posed is, do you want to grow unit volume, and so, in other words, drive just more sales, and so you bring down prices, um, or do you want to protect the sort of profitability profile of your company and just grow at a sort of slower rate? You're you're using price cuts as a lever to kind of drive an instant reaction in demand. And the conclusion that he drew was, well, I think that actually we should Tesla, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, you know, he wants Tesla to grow as fast as possible, you know, ramp up their production, ramp up the volume of their sales, but not at the expense of the company's financial health, in his words, without putting the company at risk. Mm -hmm. That I think that's why they've done it this way towards the end of the year. Um, at a seasonal time of year where people tend to do less car shopping. Are people trying to work out what happens in a recession with these companies? What, I, I, I'm, I feel that we're in a really weird car market at the moment, Ed. There has been a dearth of capacity. Used vehicles have gone up massively in price. They're now starting to come back down in price. There is a recession happening, but the consumer is still spending. What What is the outlook for, for auto sales at the moment in the United States, around the world? Well, the first thing I'll say is really interesting Texas Instruments results. Texas Instruments is a semiconductor maker, a chip maker. 
that do a very broad range of basic chips, but the auto sector is one of their end markets, right? And they said they saw softening or weaker demand in all of their end markets apart from auto. This has been the story, right? There's still some supply constraints in the fact that the auto industry couldn't get very basic semiconductors to do certain things, and so some of their cars weren't available. That seems to still be a factor. And the question is that, you know, when do they go through that that um, backlog of demand? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Uh, higher financing costs is a really big problem, and it's also a warning sign, a flashing sign for a recession risk, right? That, you know, what is the risk that consumers are, are prepared to take on their credit? Uh, to finance the, the the purchase of a car. And, you know, all of my sort of very old school editors respectfully always remind me that buying a vehicle is the second most per- expensive purchase you'll ever make after your home. Um, so I think that, yeah, we're still waiting for signs on that. Remember, I go back to what I just said, Tesla is not a cheap vehicle and it hasn't been for some time. Mm-hmm. This isn't what your sort of median or, or middle to lower income family is going shopping for. No, but you have to wonder too, sort of what the IRA uh, will also do and feed through to that. Um, I should point out the stock is only down by about four tenths, but it's had a super nice run uh, into this. I think up seventeen percent uh, since the start of the year. So I do wonder how the positioning is going to play into all of that. This is kind of Ed's Super Bowl. Like when I talk oil and guy talks planes, Ed talks Tesla, and this is how we all meet in the middle. Um, good luck. Looking forward to the coverage. Other uh, wraps it up for me and Guy. We will see you here tomorrow. Happy Wednesday, everyone. This is Bloomberg.